Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they are eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we talk about how esports can create jobs anywhere in the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Now, in season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about investment and sponsorship. We call it follow the money. And now in season three, we're talking more about how to set up an esports business. Some more business-related topics. We call it esports 101. Today, really happy to have Shirley McFall from Puerto Rico talking to us about some of her great projects there. We're going to get into a lot of detail. Hey there, Shirley. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. So where are you at today? Um, well, today I am in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, I'm actually, I live in the Condado area. And, and yeah, so that this is, this is home. <laughs> got it. Got it. No, we're going to be talking a lot about Puerto Rico because I think that's really an interesting topic because one of the things that I heard you say or read about you was like, your ultimate goal is to help grow the digital creative industries in my beautiful home of Puerto Rico. And that's that, I really want to talk about Puerto Rico because some of it for my education, but certainly for the education of the audience around the world who may not understand exactly the role, the place that, that um, Puerto Rico fits in uh, relationship to the United States. You know, some people probably think it's a separate country. Is it a state? Is it a, so if you could explain a little bit to the audience kind of the status of Puerto Rico. Yeah, of course. So Puerto Rico has a very complex um, historical context, um, specifically in its relationship with the United States. Uh, Puerto Rico was first a Spanish colony um, from its discovery in, in the late uh, 15th century all the way until 1898 when it was um invaded some would argue by the united states um spain gave puerto rico alongside with other territories um right after the um the cuban american war i guess or the hispanic american war uh, i don't know how you how you refer to it in english to be honest but the point is that for yeah, th the last, I think, I think here we usually we usually call it Spanish American War, but uh, yeah, it's it called a lot of different things. I know. I think the history is really important here. So, um, so for the past a hundred plus plus years, we've had this relationship with the United States, uh, which is a colonial relationship, um, and that means that. Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. We have a U.S. passport. Our driving license is a governmental issued license by any means, a document in the United States. Um, so, so Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. That being said, we do not 
have representation in Congress. We don't get to vote for the U.S. president. Um, and um, for the past few years, there has been this regulatory board that oversees Puerto Rico's spending. Uh, and they decide how we can actually like spend our, our, our budget. Um, because Puerto Rico has been in this like really bad economical crisis. Um, and well, you know, people bought bonds, very risky bonds, and then people lost a lot of money. And now the board exists so that uh, Puerto Rico pays back its debt. And that complicates things exponentially, as you can imagine. So, so yeah, Puerto Rico, the, 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 the story, more like the history of it and uh, our current context, social political context, is very complicated. But there's still a lot of lovely things for us here. Um, and, and, and yeah. So what, uh, how many people are there in Puerto Rico? The last census, which was 2020, I believe there is a little over 3 million people. There used to be almost 4 million people, but since Hurricane Maria in 2017, there has been a huge exodus of Puerto Ricans um, to the mainland because that point um, kind of like marked us very deeply and also made living here a thousand times harder. Um, so I have no judgment. For those who decided to leave, um, but, but but yeah, there's actually more Puerto Ricans living in the continental U.S. than in Puerto Rico. So there's like five million something like that uh, between Florida, New York, uh, Texas, California. So there are a lot of Puerto Ricans out there. Yes, yes. So you're able to if someone if someone lives in Puerto Rico that you're able to travel anywhere in the U.S. I mean, there's no, no visa requirements or, or anything like that, obviously. So and so if you want to go to Evo, states. if you want to go to Las Vegas, go to the Evo tournament in November, it's like you just you just are able to do it from a visa standpoint. That that a lot of people would be envious of, of that part anyway. So what's the what's the esports uh um world like there in Puerto Rico? So I'm, I'm just picturing having never been to Puerto Rico, but I, I, I never talked to anyone that's been there that doesn't come back with really, really good things to say. But I pictured Puerto Rico as kind of being like a small country in that it's being on an island. It's very contained that way. And so what's the esports world like in Puerto Rico? So esports in Puerto Rico is definitely an emerging, um, an emerging what would you call it? Like a, I don't want to call it an emerging industry, uh, but it's definitely like an emergent, an emergent way to do business. Right. Uh, back in 2019, the government, um, pledged to, you know, spearhead the efforts, um, when it comes to growing the video game industry in Puerto Rico, and that included esports as well as game development. Um, there are a few 
people on the island who have their esports clubs. Um, we hold very big events here as well. First Attack is the biggest one. It's been going on for 10 years. And it, whenever happens, it's a big deal. Uh, the organizer is a dear friend. His name is um, Ricardo Roman. They call him Mono. And, uh, and, and yeah, there's also Puerto Rico's national team, which is the Red Roosters. That is uh, led uh, or directed more like by uh, Yara, also your friend. Uh, and, and, and yeah, there are also smaller clubs. Uh, there are efforts going on right now to have esports after school clubs around the island, which I think it's a fabulous idea. And, and, and yeah, so th there's, you know, tournaments happening every now and then. Um, but the f definitely the official ones or the big ones, the big events are First Attack and Winter Clash, which are all organized by Mono. So um, are, are these games, are, are these events that you go to? You attend? Yes. Yes, I do attend. And do, you, do, you, do you play? Do you play games there? Are you a gamer? No, no, I don't. I, I mean, unfortunately, I don't game now as much as I used to. I also, um, the games that are played, uh, of course, are like fighter games. So there's a lot of Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. Uh, there's a lot of um, Marvel vs. Capcom, uh, and there's also Overwatch and MOBAs, and and I am terrible at all of these games, <laughs> just like awful. <laughs> so I am personally not a competitive esports player, but uh, I do like to uh, contribute and help in any way, shape, or form. So I have posted. Uh, first attack. Um, I have also just hung out and helped out. Uh, it's, it's always a lot of fun to be in these types of events. And I like feeling like my presence and the things that I'm doing are somehow, uh, really helping or improving, right? The, the video game, the, the way that people see video games on the island and the video game industry in general. How do you think that people see the video game industry in general? Because one of the things, it's always interesting to talk to people about, you know, uh, parents and their kids, you know, the, you know, the parents thinking it's one thing and the kids thinking it's something else. And they're, they're both probably a little right and a little wrong. Uh, but, um, but, but it's like, so yes. So what about you? So that's an interesting question because sometimes I feel that I'm a little bit stuck in time back in the day when people like argued about whether video games were like an art form or not, or whether video games are good for you or not. And these are conversations we still hear. Uh, but I feel like the people who are having them just haven't caught up to what most people have already realized, right? Which is that video games are in fact an art form that video games are so valuable uh, in terms of what they can provide the gamer as an experience and, and playing a game. It's a unique form of storytelling. There are some stories that simply could not exist, right? They, they, they can only exist because they're video game. And Undertale is probably my favorite example of that. 
Um, and there's also, you no, know, I think there's, there's no question of whether or not video games are also good for when it comes to, uh, creating connection and socializing with other people. Um, this is something that esports players have known forever. And it's also that something that was very, that was made very evident when the pandemic began and Animal Crossing became like the place where people would go and gather and share. And let me tell you something like the Nintendo uh, multiplayer experience <laughs> was awful and people still used it regardless. And we saw all of these huge communities forming around Animal Crossing. So there is a lot of value in video games. I think we take them for granted. I do think we still do to a certain extent. But I also think that most people at this point understand there's some type of value behind uh, playing video games and creating video games. On the island uh, here, in my experience, there's still resistance to seeing video games as something more than just entertainment. Um, but, you know, kids nowadays, they grow up playing games. They grow up in these digital spaces. So parents, which it's really weird for me to say because I guess their parents are about my age at this point. Uh, but parents are, you know, millennials. Um, they, they are catching on and they can also see, you know, that, that how important it is. Like, I, a kid who plays video games understand user interfaces. They understand the the workflow of how to go from one place in a device to another. And that skill all on itself is super, super useful. Do you think there's a difference in the culture in Latin America and versus maybe a more of a, a European um U.S. culture, as far as the approach to vid um, to video games, from a, a, a you know acceptability from a family situation, sort of thing. I'm always interested in how it work, how it varies from culture to culture. Because if you're in one culture, you don't really get to see it. That is a really good question, and uh, I, to be completely honest, I don't think it's something that I had thought of uh, carefully before, but. From my own experience, right, I am living in Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, so we are culturally, we're very much receiving all this cultural information from the United States. I've lived in Europe. I lived in, in Scandinavia for two years, so I also have kind of like that that background, understand a little bit of it, and I've lived in Latin America my whole life, right? So I think that the access to resources, aka money, and being able to, of course, afford, right, the technology required to play the games is a huge factor um, when it comes to the acceptance. At the same time, Latin America, and I'm going to generalize heavily when saying this, um, there is a culture that is very much around focus in family and family units like family is the most important thing um and i think that a lot of parents see video games as taking away family time or taking away opportunities for kids to connect with their family because they're playing games and i say that from my own experience because when i was younger certainly 
that was a huge concern for my parents. Uh, but, but, but I, again, I do think that times are changing and there is, there's still resistance, but certainly not as much as 10, even five years ago. Yes. Yeah. Cause it, one of the things that we're talking to people and, and it, it varies in different parts of the world, how, how, how real people see games and esports as a way to, to make a legitimate living. And it, it's something that, you know, a lot of people don't, you, you know, they have to convince their parents that it's like, like it's, it, it, yeah. it is possible. And one of the things that I always think that helps out on the conversation is for people to explain, for people to be able to explain all the different kinds of jobs that there are in gaming and esports, because so much of the time people think about, just being the player, just being the streamer. It's like, and, 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 you know, if you're the parent, you think, well, you know, maybe my, my, my kid, you know, isn't going to be the best player. So are, is it really a good thing for them? But they don't really, but people aren't always explained to them that they're, there's, there's a million other jobs. There's marketing jobs. There's, there's event jobs. There's all, all kinds of things out there that it's a, it's a much broader industry than just being the gamer. And sometimes that doesn't come across. Yeah, and actually, this has been an argument, and I'm gonna die in this hill. I swear um, that I'm made for a really long time. That is, it's just video games in general, whether it's esports uh, or whether it is, you know, streaming that you know can be considered, I guess, within the realm of esports. Like that not, is not necessarily competitive. Uh, but also just the creation of video games. There's so many skills involved. It's not like you, you are, you, you have to be good at multiple things, uh, and have really honed into very specific skills if you're good at what you're doing. And, you know, when you're a streamer and you're streaming your video game because you're playing, I don't know, maybe you're playing the game of Zelda and you have like a following like who enjoys watching you play. Well, that streamer had to learn how to use OBS, um, which is a streaming platform. They had to learn how to use the equipment. They had to learn how to set everything up. Uh, those are technical skills that are incredibly, incredibly useful, right? Cause then they can take that and they can create a podcast. They can work doing different things, um, managing technical stuff, right? When you are in esports, like like you said, there is a player, sure, but someone has to organize tournaments. Someone has to herd the cats, right, as they say, uh, and bring a team together. Someone needs to do the marketing. Someone needs to do the communications. Uh, and when you create video games, you know, it's not just understanding the math and the programming and the logic behind um creating something in a digital space but it's also is this going to be fun also is this going to be easy to understand and the amount of critical thinking that goes into making a game i mean come on i i personally uh would want my kids i don't have any but if i did i certainly would uh, i would want my kids to be making games because it requires so many different skills to just sit down and make something. And the tools are out there and they're so easy to use. I mean, kids, 
I do it all the time using Roblox or Minecraft. So, yeah. Yeah, I was just uh, finishing up another run through of God of War recently. And it's just like the, the storytelling, but it's also the visuals and it's the, 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 the dialogue and, and the, just the combination of those put together is not an accident. I mean, it's just, it takes, it takes real skill to, to do all of that. And, and like most great things, it, it's completely invisible. It's like, you know, you just expect it out there and it, it yeah. just always happened and- that way. And actually, God of War is a great example of a video game that manages to do something that very, very few have. And that is to uh, merge cinematic um, techniques with the storytelling within the game. So that there are moments in the game when, you know, these, these, these techniques that you would see in movies are being used. And it, they work so well to connect the player to the story and to the emotions that are happening. It's one of my favorite games, needless to say. Yes, yes. It's the same here. It's just like the, the amount of uh, of uh, storytelling ability that went in there. And the other thing that I like about it is, and a lot of video games do the same thing, but they, they, they trail back to um, mythology. I mean, it, these aren't stories that someone just made up. I mean, it's some, you know, you take Batman, things like that. Someone made that up recently, but you take God of War, so much of the legend there, so much of the lore that they use in this, in the story is, is, is ancient and they're bringing it in, you know, in a way that works. And I just think that's, that's always part of the fascination. Yeah. When I, when I played Go to War 4 and, um, I did, I wrote one of my master theses on the adaptation and remediation of Norse myth and legend in video games. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're like, you're like worlds ahead of what I was describing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that game blew me away because it's truly masterful. The way that the, the writers were able to find a way to make uh, Kratos story fit into the mythology and i was utterly surprised at the end of the game when you know that final hashtag no spoilers but when 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 you get that reveal at the end i was shook i was it caught me completely by surprise and then i was there sitting for like a few hours being like of course it makes so much sense and Honestly, you know, when you look at the history and and the surviving myths and how they survived and because of whom, Prado's story could very well fit in there. The way that they that they wrote it and that they did it, it was absolutely masterful. How accurate were they to Norse uh, Norse mythology? Because I'm I'm just at you know I picture oh yeah they probably kept right to it. But di- but did they? Well, yes and no. So the there were clearly a lot of um, creative. Uh, what's the word? There was a lot of creative liberties throughout the game, but they were done in a way that they worked. Like they they worked within what we know from the stories. And so here's the thing, right? From all Norse myth and legend, 
very, very, very little survives in comparison to what survives from uh, the Greek Roman uh, myths and legends, for example. Uh, and because we have so little, you know, it you, you have two options, either be like what we have is what there ever was and there is nothing else. Or what we have is what it's just a little tiny percent of what survived, of what there was, right? And, and this tiny percent represents just a glimpse uh, at whatever incredible, you know, oral tradition existed at some point or another. Um, the, the myths that survive also are more reflective of the moment in time when they were written down. So that would be um, 13th century Iceland. And so, and, and, you know, it's, I am 100% for taking these types of stories and reconstructing them um, because that's how we keep them alive. Uh, the stories as they are in medieval, um, the medieval texts, are really hard to read, really hard to consume. Um, most people, you know, are not gonna go and, and read the prose era or, or, um, the, the poetic era or any of these texts. No, However, re re reading Beowulf sounds like a good thing to have done, but doing yeah. it, it was not something that's going to be pleasant. Yeah, no, and Beowulf, I love Beowulf, and Beowulf is, is, is an amazing text, and, and it's, it's also at the, at the core and the heart of these stories, since Beowulf, even though it's a text in Old English, uh, it, it happens in Denmark and Sweden, right? So it is, by all means, a Viking, quote unquote, Viking text. But I guess, so the bottom line is, right? Once these texts have been written down at whatever moment in time, you are essentially killing them, right? Because these stories are meant to be fluid. They're meant to keep changing. They changed only, we have no idea how many times they changed before they were written down in whatever shape or form they exist. And it's only natural um, for them to change today so they can fit into our own narratives and into our own realities because that's the entire point of of these games um and same with like thor's um sagas in in um the marvel cinematic universe which i love uh is the same thing these these heroes you need to they need to be part of our um, collective culture in order for them to do their job, which is represent this archetype, um, of, you know, what we strive to be or we strive not to be. And as a helpful way, instrument for us to tell our stories, our human, our, our very human stories. You know, and how lucky we are that there are art, art forms out there like video games. Like, like movies that do keep these things alive. Cause otherwise it's like, it, 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 it's way too easy to lose these, uh, these stories as, as time goes on. Surprisingly so. I spent some time living in Fiji, South Pacific, 
And one of the great things about living there was storytelling and sitting around at night and telling stories of, and telling the same stories over and over again and getting the same reaction. It was just um, part of the fun. One of the things there in, in working on developing games, because you have more experience on it than, than most people we get to talk to here, it's like, how important is the narrative? How important is the, is the story versus the, the mechanics versus the, 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 and the finished product, the, you know, the, the fun part, <laughs> the fun part versus the story part? It's like, how is it best put together? Where does the story fit in? If that makes well, sense. There are two ways of looking at this, right? There are. There was actually a whole a whole um, conversation, scholarly conversation back in the nineties about this. Um, on the one side, you have they call themselves ludologists, as people who research ludology, which is games, right? Um, Gonzalo Frasca was one of the first, if not the first to write about how, um, you know, the traditional way of looking at media was not adequate for video games specifically. And he was responding to this, I don't remember if it was an article or a chapter in a book, where uh, the author made some comment about how you can read into video game stories um, and essentially look for their meaning within the same way that you would do with a movie or with literature. Blah. Then very, the very purest, more games are different than any other media then started, you know, creating all this, all, all of this knowledge, essentially. Um, from from their own experience and their own thoughts. And this was a conversation that went back and forth for a few years between this group of of video game scholars, but also like video game developers, creators, and literature people, etc. But then I guess some people are still having this conversation, but the people who started the conversation, I think, arrived to some kind of like happy medium. Um, Jesper Jewell wrote a book. Uh, I don't remember the publishing year, but it's called Half Real um, Video Gate. What was it? Half Real Real Rules in Fictional Worlds, if I'm not mistaken. And that book, uh, Jewell argues for video games not needing fiction they don't need a story video games are meant to be fun and entertain right that's why you play a game you play a game because you want to have fun right uh however every game doesn't necessarily have a story but it does have a fictional world and he gives many examples but it's just like thinking about you know something like tetris where you don't have a story i mean you can create one you know and do some emergent storytelling um but it does have a fictional world in the sense that it's the representation that we see on the computer 
of the blocks coming down is a 2D world. So we can take that aesthetic and the way that that world works. You know, we can call them the, the, the mechanics or the gameplay, like the, like the rules, the physics of this world. And we can create a whole fiction around this, right? So, um, then following that, you know, that trail of thought at the end of the day, games are rules. So the mechanics are incredibly important. Most people will begin, um, with the rules. But then again, video games also give an opportunity to tell stories in a way that we have never been able to do it before. So some people will have this story and be like, hey, I want to make this story into a game. Problem with doing that is then, then you're left with very, like, very linear games that don't give a lot of agency to the player. And so, and that's, that's a problem, specifically or especially right now, when we have players who really enjoy having autonomy, open world games, uh, and creating their own content and whatnot. But then if you start from the other side and you start with the mechanics, um, then you can take the mechanic and use a mechanic to inspire a story and then adapt that to whatever it is that you want to tell. So I guess it really depends on which of the two sides you're approaching this. Um, but in, in, I, I enjoy narrative in games. And so. in, in also the, the destination that you want to get to. I mean, it's like some people are, are come into it with more of a narrative in mind sort of thing. So it's always amazing when things, when things do work out. I mean, it's under, under really high level. I want to keep moving here because otherwise I'll keep, I'll run out of time. Um, I want to talk about when you're, you're working with women in games and we've talked to other people who, who've been working in the same organization, similar organizations over, um, in past, um, episodes. And I just thought that was really an, an interesting story to tell about what it is that you're doing with women in games and in particular, what you're doing with women in games in Puerto Rico. Yeah. So right now, um, well, Back in 2020, I want to say, I started a podcast, actually. It's called uh, Mujeres and Gaming. And the purpose of the podcast was to highlight stories from women in Latin America uh, who, you know, had found success in the video game industry. And the point of doing that was, you know, to show other girls and women out there who are interested in following similar paths, that there is a way of doing it, right? think that it's very easy for us as human beings to see the end product and be like, yes, that's what I want. I want to get there. But then it's really hard for us to see what the steps could be to get where we want to go. So listening to other people's stories, um, it's very telling of how nonlinear it is, right? Uh, you have people, you know, from people who just went to university and studied game design, and then they got a really neat job right out of college to people who 
created games, started creating games because it was fun. Then, you know, they just followed that. And somehow eventually they were hired by, by a video game company to create games. So you, there is a little of everything out there. Uh, and I've always found that interesting. So I started that in 2020. I only released one season, but it's something that I really want to get back to. Um, so I'm going to make time this year to go back to it and create more episodes. Uh, but aside from, from that, I also do my best to mentor women and girls who want to go into the industry. I am always available for that. Um, I've, uh, partnered with different people and like universities in Puerto Rico to try to move or to attract girls also to this space um, and create safe spaces as well. So right now, I'm also looking for volunteers that will help me, you know, accomplish that goal here on the island. Um, because it takes, it takes a whole, it takes a village, you know, to be able to create these spaces. And I've been, I've, I've been doing it essentially by myself, um, for what feels like forever. But I know there's, there are other people out there who also want to participate. We just need to find each other. Yes. We, um, we talked just recently with Amir Satfat, who runs one of the most amazing, um, LinkedIn groups growing incredibly fast. And he was doing it along the premise of, uh, the people who are looking for jobs in games don't always get to see all the jobs that are out there. And so he created this. And I, I really recommend people go and look for uh, Amir Satvat um, and to see what he's doing because every couple of weeks he puts out this job resource, which is just stupendous. I mean, it's just all this stuff and he's just putting it out there. But one of the things that I really, a couple of other things that he's doing there is he's doing um, quick, um, um, profile and, and uh, resume advice, CV advice to people. It's like, cause you know, everyone's like everyone, trust me, everyone can help, can get, could use some advice on, on that uh, sort of thing. You don't really know where to go, but one of the things he talks about is mentorship and, and doing mentors. And I'm just kind of curious, cause I think that's, that's super important. Something certainly in the esports, it's not very well organized. I think one of the things that I've found in, in gaming and esports, people are incredibly giving. I mean, people want to help others. I don't get the feeling, I never get the feeling or rarely get the feeling that's like, oh, I don't want you to succeed because that means I won't succeed as well. You know, it's not, people don't see it as a zero sum game. It's like, a, it, and I think it goes back to gaming because gaming in itself it, it, in a group situation is you get a bunch of people together and you go on a quest and it's all cooperative. It might be competitive against the other, other teams that are out there, but, but y y you're cooperative. And that's one of the things that, that I see out there. And one of the things I was thinking about in asking, asking you about on the mentorship side of things, how do you, how do people find mentors? And if you want to mentor, how do you find people to mentor? That's a great question. So, um, at the Puerto Rico Game Developers Association, we do, well, at this year, we, we couldn't do it, but. For the last few years, we have partnered with Latinx and Gaming to create like a like a 
lounge, a mentorship lounge, right? And we leveraged our our connections with the video game industry to find people who want to be mentors. Um, and then we matched them with video game students. You know, they were their developers or students in game design or, or artists or people who just want to find their way into the video game industry. And we pair them so that they can talk to each other, essentially. Then it's up to them whether that relationship of mentor-mentee continues or not. But we do match them. And that in itself, it's a huge help. Because people, you know, if you want to go somewhere uh, and there's already someone who has a map, then you definitely want to talk to them. Um, there's also... Uh, in terms of finding um, mentees, if you're like someone who wants to be a mentor, I think that just, you know, I, I do this, which is if I'm on LinkedIn and I see uh, someone who's clearly um, in, in a similar career path than I am, and I see that they're doing things, I will reach out. And I'll be like, hey, I, I see what you're doing. Um, or, I mean, this is not literally what I said, but something along the lines like, hey, you're on my radar and I see what you're doing. and I like it. And I would like to talk to you about it. Um, and like that, it's more out of my own curiosity for what people are doing. And also, yes, yes. I want to help them. Um, and same if you're a mentee looking for a mentor, just send them a message on LinkedIn or on Instagram or on Twitter or on whatever. Uh, and I, I think most people are responsive to that unless you're like me who for the longest time had like my notifications off for LinkedIn. So don't be, don't be me. I've already fixed it though, just in case, but yeah. Um, but I, something that you said, really stuck with me and you know that when you said that um video games are cooperative so there is a sense of of wanting to collaborate within the industry and i also i also think i would like to add to that that it was so hard right for us to get where we are and that we want it to not be as hard to others, right? Because um, when I first came out of college, there was no such thing as degrees in video game design, which is what I wanted to do. Um, so I had to find other ways of, you know, getting close to the industry. And then I'm a big nerd, so I chose academia, because sure. But uh, once you're, you know, once you've made your own path and you've found place where you want to be then you look back and it's like well i'm here let me let me see who i can help get here as well and i think that's very common in in the video game uh in the video game scene at least in the parts of the video game industry that i <laughs> that i go to because i also know it can be very brutal but that's a different story for a different time no, and I think one of the things that you find, and you said it exactly there, it's like you gravitate toward the people that think like you. 
So if you want to, if, if you, <laughs> if you're surrounded by people who are all negative, it's on you. I mean, it's like you, you get to choose who it is that you're going to participate in, in, in things with. One thing I wanted to also talk about really, really briefly, but I know that you are also, um, have a lot of experience on, um, NFTs on crypto on web three sort of things. And this is not something that we can do in two minutes on here. But what I do want to ask you is where do, where can people go to learn about these things? Because I think there's a, there's a huge learning curve in each of those areas out there, AI included. And I think there's a lot of really smart, curious people that would like to know more, but they don't really know where to go for those. And it may be different for those different categories. But in general, if someone's interested, I mean, what, what's the best way to educate yourself in a, in a responsible way on things like this? Yeah. So um, my day job is with the Puerto Rico Blockchain Trade Association, and I run their education and community outreach program. So um, what I would recommend to anyone interested in, you know, in NFTs, blockchain, Web3, AI, all of these technologies and, and, you know, the use case for the internet of the future is just YouTube. <laughs> YouTube is the easiest way to learn. Um, uh, there are a few, there, there are a few YouTube channels with amazing information. The Defiant is probably one of my favorites for English speakers. Uh, for Spanish speakers, uh, I would recommend Crypto Conexión which is they have videos and articles, everything in Spanish. Um, but I particularly, we focus in, in education directed specifically for Puerto Ricans. So it's very, very much culturally and uh, area specific. Uh, but it's, I do agree that it's really hard to find, you know, sources that you can trust, which is, one of the things that blockchain technology has the potential of helping us with is precisely, precisely that, right? Um, but it's a great world and it's growing. So I would definitely recommend even people who don't necessarily like it, I would still recommend them to look into it uh, with an open mind because you never know what you can find. No, we'll put some links um, with the with the episode when it's released for that you're describing there because it, yeah it's like people are you know people can pretend this isn't going to exist but they're they're going to be sorely disappointed <laughs> down the road and it, and it's just like you know th things change all the time and it's just and i think it's really important that people understand it going back to your podcast one of the things i want to know is because I, it, it, that sounds so similar to what what kind of what we're doing here I mean, we're obviously doing it, doing it to a different audience for a different goal, but what's the most surprising episode that you had on your podcast? Who did you talk to that you were like, wow, I never thought of it this way before, but now I always will. Anyone come to mind that way? Yeah. Well, honestly, I think every single woman I interviewed for the podcast had something to teach me. One of the things that I enjoy the most from doing podcasts is that it gives me the perfect excuse to go and meet people that I was work I admire. 
right? So I have an episode with um, Sandra Castro Pinzon from Colombia, and she has this channel called Tan Grande Jugando, and she has a master's in like sociology and politics, and she is incredibly smart and incredibly kind. And one, of, I would, I would say she's one of the driving forces behind the Colombian video game industry. And she's just incredible. I also talked to um, Sol. I, I, her last name escapes me right now. She's a developer from Peru. Um, and, you know, her, her video games have won prices since the episode. Uh, and she was so, again, so incredibly kind and excited and wanting to be seen. And I guess the thing that all of these women had in common was that desire to tell their stories and to be seen, um, but be seen under their own terms, which is something that, you know, women sometimes don't have really control over that. Um, but, but yeah, all of them had something to teach me. And I cherish every one of those conversations. Just listening to your voice when you're talking about those, you really like doing those uh, those interviews and, and talking to those women. And one of the things that you said here is, uh, which I think is really, really important, and sometimes people lose um, track of it, is to be seen. I mean, it's just like, uh, it, it sounds... You know, I mean, it, it's different because here you're sitting here in California and it's like everyone's seen here. I mean, that's that, that is not a, an issue for what we're doing, you know, right here uh, on our side right now. But for so many people in so many parts of the world, just to be seen is a big deal. And so the, anything that we can do to help that happen, it's like, you know, that's a good day. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the desire to be seen comes from a place of, you know, most- being witnessed, being validated, being, and of course you can talk about intrinsic validation and motivation and whatnot. But at the end of the day, when you're doing something, whether it's, but it's for your community, when you're doing something that is very important to you, you want to be witnessed by others. You want others to see what you're doing, not because it's going to amplify you in any way, shape or form. But because by other people witnessing you, it bec- what you're doing becomes real, and and that's the important part. I think is once you there there is a, a recognition from the world that you're doing something that matters, then it just it elevates everything, right? Um, but and again, I don't think that desire comes from because it's something that I've thought of a lot. Uh, and I don't think that desire comes from an egotistical place, but just a place of, I want to be witnessed. I want to people to know that I'm doing this and that it matters, not because of me, but because of the people that it's impacting. Um, and, and that acknowledgement makes it real. Now, if we, well said, and if we have any potential to help make that happen it's like we're, we're we're the lucky ones to be able to just like to have conversations like this hey i really appreciate you spending a little bit of time here talking about 
the things that you're doing in Puerto Rico and some other things that we probably didn't think we we're going to be talking about, which, which is really, really good, which is part of the fun here. So really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today, Shirley. Thank you so much for the invitation, Tom. Really, really appreciate you. Where can people learn more about what it is that you're doing? What's the best uh, place to send people to? And we'll put we'll put links, but if you can give us some direction. So probably the best place would be LinkedIn. Um, because I'm not very active on Twitter at the moment. So LinkedIn is definitely the best place to find me uh, and to contact me as well. So, so yeah, LinkedIn. Okay. That's what we'll, that's where we will drive people there. So thanks again for everyone for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we now have um, a new Facebook group. You can go out there and find our Facebook group and interact with other people. And we will talk to you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.